Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. All right. Another big week. We got six macaroonies in the bag. Uh, We even went and saw a couple. We went with some friends and went and saw Clue in the theater, which was super lovely. Um, And I took my mom to see The Flash because she really wanted to see The Flash. So we're not covering that here. Um, it was okay. That was the quick review. It's been a challenge watching movies because you're in the middle of marking diplomas, which is a hundred percent full-time job for like what, 10 days in a row. Yeah. And it's an earlier start time and a later end time than I'm used to. And you're just grinding all day. You get an hour for lunch, which I don't normally get, but it's also like in a different location, which is just tricky and all of the things. And it's over the weekend. So yes. it's uh, that's a lot of days in a row doing doing the work. But yes, I appreciate the work that you do, but it makes it tricky to watch all the movies we'd want to watch. This is true. Um, yeah. Um, also, before we get into the movies proper, I just wanted to thank all the folks who liked and shared and commented on our post that we put on Instagram on Father's Day. Yeah. Um, it was really lovely to see that connection with each other um, through words and through thinking about what dads mean. Obviously, we talk about that every week, um, but it was nice to see it there as well. If you haven't seen it and you don't follow us on Instagram, uh, highly recommend at baddad.raddad and let us know what you think with a little like or a share or a comment or a message. Yeah. If you're not following us, follow us already. It's Yeah, follow we, us already. We put, we put good stuff We do. We put, we put good stuff. We're good at socials. Pretty good at socials. Let's talk about some movies. Okay. We went back to our favorite place, Metro Cinema, and we saw our first John Cassavetes film, A Woman Under the Influence. It's from 1974. It's a drama slash romance written and directed by John Cassavetes and starring, uh, I'm just going to name our two big cheeses in this one, uh, Gina Rollins as Mabel and Peter Falk as Nick. 
Um, or the grandpa from Princess Bride, who I could not unsee the whole time. I haven't seen it yet. So I'm curious to like really make that connection because I, I haven't, even though you've told me. <laughs> Synopsis. Although wife and mother Mabel is loved by her husband, Nick, her mental illness places a strain on their marriage. So this was the final film in the Trials of Love series. And um, the curator, I cannot remember his name. Off Darrell the top. Smith. Darrell Smith. Um, he always gave a little preamble before each of the films and Basically, this film was the impetus for the whole series. Uh, he just wanted to see this film, and it is a great culmination of all of the films of the Trials of Love series that we have seen over the course of this month, and definitely went out with a bang. It was an excellent series that was curated by Durrell. Yeah. What do you think of Woman Under the Influence? This was such an interesting one to see in the theater, because I think it's been on my watch list for a long time, mm-hmm. simply because it's on the top 250 letterboxed and it's a movie you hear about. But I really and truly knew nothing about it. And it's quite long. So I think anytime I've looked at my watch list, and I believe it's on Criterion Channel, I've just been like, two and a half hours for an older film. I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. And then leading up to seeing this in the theater, when we would go to see the other films in the trial, Trials of Love, they would have the trailers for the upcoming ones. And the trailer for this that they would show is just something. Bananas. Yeah, it's like so strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not necessarily something that would make a person be super stoked to see the movie, but maybe intrigued. Yes. So I was like, I don't really know what we're getting ourselves into, but it's going to be long and it's supposed to be really good and we'll see what happens. When the series was like so great too, because it introduced us, we had two big firsts with some big directors for us between uh, we, us seeing our first Varda and now our first Cassavetes. This is true. So pretty cool. And our first one car Y in the theater. Oh yeah. Man, great series. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So to get into the movie proper, this was mesmerizing. Yeah. In a way, so, you know, we've got some interesting kind of themes and and particularly bookends that happen, I think, sometimes accidentally through us. Just the things we watch in a week, we start to notice these through lines. Um, Sometimes I think maybe subconsciously we pick movies that are connected because we saw this and it made us think of this. But with the first film we watched, A Woman Under the Influence, and the last film we watched, which we'll eventually get to, they both have these incredibly funny moments Mm -hmm. where I'm like, I can't stop laughing. And then they're also deeply emotional and upsetting and sad. And they kind of marry those two things. Also, both of the films really deal with the complexities of family and community. Yeah. And so I thought that was a really interesting bookend. I don't know if you picked the final film on purpose or if these kind of ideals were swirling around in your head. But that's what I really took away from this movie is it was really funny at times and it was also really complicated and it was really dark Mm -hmm. and yet it also felt mundane. Yeah. This is kind of our bread and butter of films that we (laughs) think are absolute jams. Not everybody likes it. But like this, the next film, the last film that we watch, it's like... If you throw complex, introspective, thoughtful, beautiful, 
family drama shit at us, it's usually a four and a half hour or a five. (laughs) (laughs) Probably most of the time, yes. This is one that um, I always feel that complicated thing of I am both so grateful that I saw it for the first time in the theater because what a thing to experience, but also I would have loved subtitles. Always. And for the most part, the audience was really great, so that wasn't an issue. Sometimes you go see a movie. You know, we took our good buddy Ashley. If you've listened to anything more than this first 10 minutes of this episode, you know who she is. We took her to see 2001 A Space Odyssey for her first time in the theater, and the audience was absolute shit. Whereas we saw it for the first time in the theater in a nearly empty IMAX and it just blew our fucking minds in a way that I don't know it would have as significantly if we had watched it at home. Mm -hmm. So there's always this delicate balance of seeing this older film, seeing this well-liked film. Do you see it for the first time in the theater and that's going to make the experience or will it ruin the experience? And the same at home, you just got to take a gamble. I think it was really worth seeing this in the theater, but at times I was like, what you saying? (laughs) i'm leaning in to hear you better yeah no i hear you uh i wish that like sometimes i see like bootleg footage of people filming stuff in the theater for like the bigger blockbuster films and in other countries they'll throw subtitles on all of the films that play there and i wish i just wish everything had subtitles but anyway the thing that made this movie for me was gina fucking Rollins. Holy shit, what a powerhouse. A powerful force on that screen, and her presence is felt through every moment that she's up there, and it's severely missed whenever she's not up there. She's incredible. Full stop. <laughs> Nothing more to say. <laughs> yeah, I was blown away by her. I I don't think I've ever seen her in anything. Have you? Uh, Just the notebook. Oh, right. We looked at that after. And then I, I believe... I really hope I'm not getting this detail wrong that the notebook was directed by her son. Yeah. Which you said afterward. And I was like, no way. Cause yeah, Gina Rollins and John Cassavetes are, uh, well, he's dead. Well, yeah. So no longer, but they at one point were, and then they, and made Nick Cassavetes. (laughs) And then he made the notebook. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, things and stuff. Speaking of Nick, I thought Peter Falk was also, he acted incredibly in this, but he is such a product of his time and as such can be a real fuck. It's really interesting because when you, when we go see a film like this, that's curated at Metro or even a singular film, that's not part of a curation, but they have a speaker. It frames your viewing of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Just like I'm sure to a degree, if someone watches a film, if you person listening to us right now watches a film based on our recommendation what we have said about it is framing the way that you view it and one of the things that Darrell Smith said was that this film looks at the complicated parts of family and particularly marriage without judgment towards either character and I agree but then I was reading afterwards this came out in 1974 Mm -hmm. that women were coming out in droves and booing Nick's character the character of Nick And I I can't remember if it was Peter Falk or John Cassavetes that I read about this, but they were like, why, why is he getting booed? And people were like, the women's movement, the women's (laughs) movement are bad. (laughs) But I think that that, if that story is true, if it's not, I still think it's very funny. Um, Just speaks to how, even though John Cassavetes was documenting something very real. and, And like I said earlier, to some extent mundane, 
the growing awareness socially and, and like from women themselves to start speaking about these things makes this actually like a really rife kind of time capsule and then like way to think about the social expectations in North America towards marriage, particularly like in that middle class, typically white structure, family structure, but also how that carries through to today and and the lingering effects of that. Yeah, I totally felt that. It totally felt like just this slice of life of what life was like at this time. But I was like, something I really felt is that the dynamic between Mabel and Nick is not unlike what I imagine my grandparents' relationship being like. Totally. So I I spoke a couple weeks ago uh, about my grandmother that passed away. But like growing up, I only saw little glimpses of her because like my my grandpa died when I was 12 years old. But their dynamic and just like this old school, the man goes to work and gets and like gets the money to pay for the house and the things for the wife and the kids and the wife stays home and looks after the house and the kids. And like that's how the man shows love and that's how the wife shows love. And that is just so what I envision. And like also my my grandmother, like she she was quite immature. And you could I, I just saw that in in that like that likeness in Mabel. And then the way that Nick chose to show his love or to interact with his family felt very much like my grandpa. And yet at the same time, like the speaker said before the film that's being explored at the same time that they show that there's no shortage of love for the children. There's no shortage of love for each other, but it's incredibly complex and sometimes harmful. And I don't know. It's just so, it's so interesting. It was really harrowing at times. Yeah. And it, it hurts especially because you kind of get some sweet moments before it turns into less sweet moments. There's definitely, it's not like it takes a sharp turn. Mm-hmm. There's kind of these punctuations of like harm and for the audience, like a, a darker, more upsetting element. And, and then there's a more prolonged aspect to that later on. Yeah. Um, I have a quote from Richard Dreyfus about this film. Would you like to hear it? Sure. I know he's kind of a pee pee poo poo now currently in life. Um, I don't know why he can't be good. I love him in Jaws. So he said when he saw this film back in the 70s, he was on a talk show and he said about the film that it is, quote, the most incredible, disturbing, scary, brilliant, dark, sad, depressing movie. I went crazy. I went home and vomited. (laughs) I get that. I think especially if you were in a relationship like this, or really saw particularly maybe your parents' relationship reflected in that, um, that it would be a really niggling kind of thing. Well, yeah, because this came out the year before Jaws came out, so he's in his, what, 20s, maybe 30s. So, yeah, I can totally see that just like that is of the time and what relationships are like and what relationships have have been leading up until this point. And at least North American white relationships. Yeah. I don't know. I just like, I see, I I saw it in my grandparents. I, and then I totally saw it in my parents too. 
And like my dad has said as much as like, this is how I thought you show love for your family is like you work a whole bunch and you bring home the money and like, it's okay that you're not present because you're providing for your family. And that's how I show love. And it's like, like now I know like it's more complex than that. Like I want to see your face. I want to see your face. I don't need you to be away all the time making money. Another thing that was spoken about before the film um, in the kind of curatorial framing was that like John Cassavetes and Gina Rollins when they would work together, but also just John Cassavetes himself like made the kind of films he wanted to make that weren't necessarily things that were going to make it big at the box office. And in reading about this film, it really was the little film that could. Um, he spent most of his own money on this and the film cost $750,000 to make in 1974, which is not cheap. Um, and then nobody would play it. Mm. And so at least according to the things I read, he would go to theaters carrying the reels for the film under his arms and ask them to play the film. Um, eventually, Martin Scorsese, who really liked the movie, threatened to pull his own film and he was a much bigger director at the time. Um, he threatened to pull his film from a New York festival if they wouldn't play A Woman Under the Influence. And so it got played. Um and then he also would like rent out movie theaters to show the film to kind of like spread the word. And eventually it did gross $12 million, but he had to not only work awesome. to make the film, but afterwards to be like, watch my movie. And it, I think I've been thinking a lot lately when we think about music and writers and films and art of any kind, this kind of these people who make these works of art that are so, personal to them and they work so hard for and sometimes that recognition isn't necessarily seen in their lifetime or even in the contemporary moment that they make it and yet it eventually happens um yeah standing by your art hustling for your art would you watch this movie again i think i would but i think like not for some time take a break take yeah a break. yeah it was so intimate and subtly intense um, and it was such a heartbreaking depiction of just like the unbreaking cycle that exists like in a relationship and also just like mental health care in the seventies or lack thereof. Uh, it's, it's very, it, it felt so real and it, there's just, there's sweetness and there's darkness and there's humor and there's yeah sadness. Yeah. I recommend it. <laughs> I think even if that's not totally a person's kind of film, I think it's just like a reflection on the so-called nuclear family of, you know, the kind of fifties to I guess, even now, but at the, in that time, the seventies is worth just seeing this little time capsule of it. Yeah, totally. How did it make you feel? It made me feel gratitude for the complex, non-judgmental depiction of trauma and family. Yeah, that's well put. You? Made me feel in awe of the performances and heartbreaking humanity that was on display. Speaking of performances and heartbreaking humanity, mm. we went to quite the emotionally draining and yet deeply impactful accidental double feature at Metro that day. Um, and when we're doing a quick turnaround at Metro, we always grab a poutine at the nearby. Poutinery. Poutinery. <laughs> um, so we did that. And then we saw the 2022 drama Monica, something we've been 
really looking forward to seeing and so, so glad that it came to Metro. Um, it was directed by Andrea Palero uh, and written by him as well as Orlando Tirado. It stars the absolute powerhouse Trace Lissette as Monica, Patricia Clarkson as Eugenia, Emily Browning as Laura, Joshua Close as Paul, and Adriana uh, Barraza as Letitia. The synopsis for this one is the intimate portrait of a woman who returns home to care for her dying mother, a delicate and nuanced story of a fractured family. The story explores universal themes of abandonment, aging, acceptance, and redemption. What did you think of Monica? Holy fucking shit, this was incredible. Yeah. Um, like I was saying off the top, this is the exact kind of movie that you and I love. We had a lot of that this week. Yeah, yes. I've been thinking about this movie all week. It hasn't really left my brain. I think about it at least once a day, I think. Um, today at work, I shared the trailer for it. I'm like, I know it's not super easy and accessible. It's It's not on any streamers or anything, but seek it out because it is incredible uh and i've recommended it to multiple people we went to like an art show at your high school and i was talking to a few people i ran into and i'm like hey, you should see monica <laughs> yeah this is one that it's it's such a shame that it hasn't quite gotten the attention that i think it deserves and the only reason i know about it is from letterboxd and a few folks that i follow who i like really value their opinion on film who saw it because they're out in la Oh. Right. And then being like, okay, well, I got to see that. And I probably wouldn't have even heard of it otherwise. Um, although because it came to Metro and we saw some trailers when we were at other films, I might have been like, oh, that's Trace Lissette and then been interested in it. But otherwise probably wouldn't have heard of it. Like you said, this movie is everything that you and I love about film and maybe not even film, but just storytelling in general. Mm -hmm. It is quiet and yet powerful. It is deeply emotional and yet honest mm -hmm. and tender. I just loved everything about it. And it's one I can see myself returning to again and again and again. It's got that after sun thing. It's got that after Yang, that petite mama. It's got that feeling that I love. Rice boy sleeps. Rice boy sleeps, which is another one that more people should see. You can rent and buy this on Apple and probably Amazon. I don't know about that, but I highly, highly, highly recommend that people do. Yeah. What did you love so much about it? I was all the things that you just listed and it's like, it's so quiet and introspective and lingers. Like I, I walked away from this feeling like I didn't just watch a series of scenes. I watched a series of moments mm. and that's just how it made me feel like there was really long takes throughout, which, you know, I'm a sucker for, but. It was just done in a way where like the whole film could just breathe and it just allow you to be in the room with the characters. And it felt that way the whole way through. There's no diegetic sound. Non-diegetic No non-diegetic. <laughs> I'll get it one day. Uh, so there's no music other than music that our characters can hear throughout. Um, and like not even in the credits, which we'll get to in a second. But it's just, it's so, it's so wrapped me up. And Trace Lissette was amazing. We've seen her in, particularly the show Transparent, in a more secondary role. Um, and then I believe she's in the documentary Disclosure and possibly the Caitlyn Jenner show, which I did watch. Um, <laughs> mostly because I liked a lot of the women and um, 
there had to have been some non-binary folks, maybe not, but a lot of the folks who were in it who weren't Caitlyn Jenner, I, I liked them and I wanted to to see and support them. Um, I'm so happy to see Trace Lissette in a lead role. <laughs> she is incredible. Um, do I wish this film was made by a trans person? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very happy to see she was an executive producer on it. Um, and I just can't think anything but that this film is incredible. Yeah. And it's just like such a testament to searching for a voice, for understanding, for acceptance and love within your family. Whether it's one of or all of those things, it does its, it, it displays all of those things so well, but so subtly. Like you feel, at least for me, you feel all of those things and you feel that, that searching or that longing through Monica and the what the way that Trace Lissette portrays that character and all of those things in just a look or a small action or like a small bit of kindness or frustration. Something else I really appreciated about this movie is that it is so emotional, it is so beautiful, and yet it's not trauma porn. Yeah. Um, and I think so often stories of marginalized folks or underrepresented folks can just be about like, oh, let's see how sad their lives are or how much trauma they've had to go through. And this film certainly explores in a nuanced and quiet way the journey of this character in all of its complexity and all of its joy and beauty and trauma and sadness. All of it is in there. Mm -hmm. And yet there's no like big revelatory traumatic scene or confrontation or violent flashback or anything like that. And I really, really, that's what I like in any story, but I think that's particularly needed for stories that are about folks who are from underrepresented groups, especially if it's made by somebody who isn't a part of that group. Yeah. Um, And I really, really, really appreciated that. I also think this has a specific story about the character of Monica that is so beautiful at the same time, that exploration of complex grief and parental trauma, I think is relatable mm-hmm. in a way that through the specificity of Monica's story, there's also through lines about humanity. And I, I just like her, Trace Lissette and Patricia Clarkson are both so good in this. Yeah. They're perfection. I mean, Patricia Clarkson, just like the two of them together are amazing. I mean, there's this, there's a scene in the bathtub and we're just kind of holding on Patricia Clarkson's face and she just crushes this scene. Mm-hmm. And there's so many moments between her and Trace Lissette throughout this that are just so wonderful and so emotional and it runs the gamut of emotions, each interaction that they have. Yeah, I couldn't love this anymore, I don't think. And, and I'm also just a simp for... 1.2 to 1 ratio movies <laughs> Me too. like this and the, the light- color palette the way that it had that kind of like nostalgia kind of tint to it you know like like ladybird has yeah um i'm a sucker for that i also this has like my favorite kind of final scene like mm-hmm. an abrupt ending where it's like some people might hate that and be like well i did end there and I'm like, we didn't, as the final scene was happening, I'm like, I hope it ends here. I hope it ends here. I hope it ends here because it was the perfect place to end. We knew everything we needed to know. And I just loved it. It it was the perfect place to leave that journey for the audience in Monica's life. 
mm-hmm. and just let her continue on. Yeah. A slice of life. Yep. It was a complicated viewing. Yeah, we'll talk about this now. <laughs> so there was, this is the strangest thing that's ever happened. Um, the movie wasn't getting started and we're like, what's going on? I guess that for some reason the distributor had locked the access to it and it was a Sunday night at like six, it was supposed to start at 645, I want to say, or seven. And they were trying to get a hold of the distributor to get access to the film that they had the rights to play at that moment. So the movie started about 20 or 30 minutes late. But the complicated thing about this is this was such a quiet, introspective movie that asks you to lean in and just hold and there. Like, and like we said, end credits, there's no music. It's just silence in the theater. And that's normally the kind of thing I would just sob through and then sit in the silence. But our theater, who which we love and think is the best place in the world, was playing Twilight New Moon that night. And at about 8.15, the lobby started getting super noisy. Very buzzy. Which... Had the movie started on time, we would have still had about half an hour of the movie left. But because the movie didn't start on time, we had about an hour of the movie left. And so for about an hour of this movie about this really complex emotional relationship between a woman and importantly, a trans woman. At least in terms of like thinking about making sure that we're in the month of June, no less giving space and time to honor that story. I really hated that there was this rowdy crowd going on in the lobby and I know that it must be an incredibly difficult thing to try and make sure that you program things that aren't stepping on each other's toes um and like they I'm pretty sure that they tried to start the film I mean the film started half hour late which also stinks but also like Metro is fully a volunteer run yeah so trying to get everybody checked in and then trying to wrangle all of the twilight lovers in the (laughs) lobby No easy feat. Yeah, so that was a bit of a shame that we kind of had this rowdy background noise and what was such a beautiful, quiet film. So I can't wait to buy it or rent it or whatever we're going to do and watch it again at home and just, I will ball like a baby. Yeah. I'm ready for it. movies like this and Rice Boy Sleeps, I just, I want such a, like a nice little Blu-ray and just to put on the shelf and to support this film further, but you know. Buy it digitally at the very least. Yeah. How did Monica make you feel? Blown away by its power and beauty. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a quiet and powerful reflection on grief, which we all know is my favorite thing in the world. Slam dunk, baby. All right. For the next one is my mystery movie pick. And I wanted to, we talked last episode or a couple episodes ago about how into Taskmaster we are. And I just wanted to continue the trend of, British humor and revisit a movie I've only seen once. And I picked Hot Fuzz, a 2007 comedy. Uh, It was uh, directed by Edgar Wright and written and directed by Edgar Wright as well as Simon Pegg. It stars Simon Pegg as Nicholas Angel, (laughs) Nick Frost as PC Danny Butterman, Jim Broadbent as Inspector Frank Butterman, um, Olivia Coleman as PC Doris Thatcher, uh, and a whole bunch of other people. Samson the dog is Saxon. Um, <laughs> the synopsis, a skilled London police officer after irritating superiors with his embarrassing effectiveness 
is transferred to a village where the e- where the easygoing officers object to his fervor for regulations as a string of grisly murder strikes the town. What do you think of Hot Fuzz? I love Hot Fuzz. Yeah, you're a big you're you're a big Hot Fuzz fan, and I I, I sadly just like weren't as cool as me in high school. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> Did I show this movie to you? Yeah, that's the only other time I've seen. Wow, it. I am so, so cool. Hondo. So you want to hear about my history with this movie? Please. So I didn't get along with my brother very well growing up. Actually, the true story of it is when he was born, I was obsessed with him and I took him to show and tell and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then he became an annoying little boy and I didn't like him. Been there. <laughs> and then around the time I was like 16, 17, 18, 19, and he was kind of getting into his teens because we're three and a half years apart we started to get along really well. And my, you know, my oldest sister had moved out. My second oldest sister still lived at home, but wasn't around very often and was like staying at her boyfriend's house a lot. And we just kind of started bonding. And one of the things that he and I both really liked was British humor. Like we just loved like British content in general. Like we really liked Watchmen and we would play this like weird Watchmen video game that was basically any video game, but it just had Night Owl and Rorschach in it um and we would just like hang out and play that together and we like watched Shaun of the Dead together and then I think we saw this for the first time together and were obsessed and just watched it endlessly um separately and as a pair and it was just something that we really bonded over and I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen it's really it's really sweet and I'm actually surprised that like we haven't revisited this movie that much because I uh We've seen, like, we always reach for Shaun of the Dead and never really think, at least I never really think of reaching for Hot Fuzz. I think this one might be a little longer. And sometimes runtime run is the deciding factor, right? Yeah. I think that that's probably right. But I actually think that this holds up much better than Shaun of the Dead in a lot of ways. Well, something I was thinking about with it because I liked them both when I was younger, is revisiting them from like where I am now. Hot Fuzz is less mean than Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Like if Shaun of the Dead is The Office, then Hot Fuzz is Parks and Recreation. Yes. And they're both good, but I think I've outgrown mean humor because there's too much meanness in real life. Mm-hmm. So I can watch Shaun of the Dead because it's a movie. But if it was a series, I'm like, I don't know that I want to be invested in meanness for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. This one is, I was worried that it wouldn't hold up as well as it did because it's about cops. It's about like small town politics, but it is fucking hilarious. And it like totally takes the piss out of cops. And it takes the piss out of like suburban towns. Yeah. Like it does in a satire on action a critique of white suburbia in a way that like blue velvet does or American beauty does, but it just does it through comedy Mm -hmm. instead of through, I don't know what you can call what David Lynch does, (laughs) but whatever David Lynch does or like in American beauty through like drama. Right. Yeah. I also, I, I I really like Simon Pegg. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like when you get Simon Pegg and Nick Frost together and especially in this, cause like, I always just think of this as this is um, 
just taking the piss out of action movies and action movie tropes, but it's also doing it with romance movies. Yeah. I, you know, I never, maybe I shouldn't say I never realized that because I've seen so many movies. I don't even know what I did and did not realize about movies because <laughs> I didn't have letterbox my whole life, which I did, but it is, it's through Danny Butterman and Nicholas Angel. There's also traditional romance tropes. Mm-hmm. And it's done really well and not in a homophobic way or like they're not playing on that. They're just playing on romance tropes. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. It's also just like so interesting to me that I don't like action movies and yet I love this. Like I find it when it does kick into what is like a full blown action sequence. I just think it's hilarious because I'm like, yeah, action movies are dumb. But I also know that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost do love action movies. Like this is a loving homage to them. While taking the piss out of them. Mm -hmm. Well, and like, especially this film, you start to kind of see, you kind of start to see where Edgar Wright is finding his footing as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. because I, you see in watching this, the groundwork that led him to being the right person for Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah. Just with his sharp cuts and just jumping around and his pacing and like even the the short trailer he made in front of Grindhouse for Don't, like I could see bits of that in here. Uh, and even Baby Driver. And I think I had a moment too where I'm just, I'm so sad because I really like Baby Driver. But at this point, there's so many nasty people that are in that movie that it would be really hard. It's The cognitive dissonance was already difficult with Kevin Spacey in that movie. And now Ansel Piscort is in it as well. God damn it. <laughs> um, but I think I want to revisit this more frequently because I really enjoyed it. And I love how lovely Nick Frost and Simon Pegg's, Pegg's characters are. This would be a fun backyard movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really good. It's really good. And the fact that it was as lovely as it was hit the spot. There's also a cool cameo from Kate Blanchett. Oh, Yes. And it was really cool to see Olivia Coleman and be like, Olivia Coleman, we really like her now. Yeah. Yeah, she's popping up everywhere. It's, it's lovely. And I think we're going to start seeing some of the folks in these things on Taskmaster. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Taskmaster. Yeah. Yeah, it was great to revisit this. I was, I was so happy to do it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel absolute joy at the witty, biting humor. Mm-hmm. You pleasantly surprised and tickled. What was tickled? The funny bone. Haha, <laughs> all that silly old bone. <laughs> I got a mystery movie pick and I went weird with it. <laughs> I decided to go weird. So I've had this movie on my watch list for a while and I got a little letterbox email letting me know that it was available on Criterion Channel. And so I decided to pick it. I picked the 1994 drama sci-fi Fresh Kill. It was directed by Shuli Chang and written by Jessica Hadjadorn. It stars Sarita Chowdhury as Sharon Lightfoot, Aaron McMurdy as Claire Mayakovsky, Abraham Lincoln Lim as John Bin. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> so that's a Abraham Lincoln. I didn't even make the connection. <laughs> Apparently he w- he went by Abe Lincoln Lim in the credits. Uh, Jose Zuniga as Miguel Flores and Lori Carlos as Mimi Mayakovsky. 
The synopsis is Sharon and Claire, a lesbian couple living on Staten Island, find themselves ensnared in a vast conspiracy involving a ghost ship of nuclear refuse, ominous television commercials, and deadly cat food. What did you think of Fresh Kill? It was very peculiar. Peculiar. But powerful. Hmm. It felt very 90s. I love that, though. Yeah, like very... If you're throwing me a vibe like a like a clerks or a watermelon woman kind of thing, I'm usually I'm usually there for it. But that also starts to play in the waters of Twin Peaks, like the series, the original series. Mm-hmm. There were things here that I thought were very innovative and fresh in the way that Twin Peaks was at the time. Um, and I think that if I had seen this around that time, I would have been pretty floored by it. Like I would have been like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. It's got that like twin peaks flair, but make it gay and make it feminist and make it political. Yeah. Which is, and like political in a way that still feels sadly relevant to now, but also as nuanced as we would want now, which is really lovely to see something that is older, that has strong, political messaging that we still agree with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And like something that I felt felt really fresh and unique in this movie was the dialogue. Mm. Like I felt the way that everybody was speaking and speaking with each other. I found that really compelling and it drew me in and it created this very Lynchian surrealist kind of space that we were in. It's also playing on like the um, hacker mm-hmm. aesthetic of the, you know, we see in the nineties and, you know, that has become kind of more polished in air in, in shows like Halt and Catch Fire and things like that. Um, Shuli Chang, who directed the movie classified the film as an eco cyber noia. N O I A. How would you pronounce that? N O I A. If N O I R is noir, 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 it's 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 noir. It's a, it's but if you're from Bo- if you're from yeah. Boston or it's Brooklyn, yeah, eco cyber yeah. noir. <laughs> um, and to her, that means that it describes a quote massive intrusion into people's lives, a future where multinational media empires clash with hackers. But honestly, don't we live in a future right now where multinational media empires are intrusive in people's lives? So yeah. that's depressing. Yeah. They they come in and they want you to download their app so you can see what your face looks like when you're old. And <laughs> in the meantime, they're just taking all your information, sucking up our lives. No, I, I don't, I, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> you are doing it, but I think what you're saying is you're going to stop doing yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, uh, honestly, I think it was too smart for me on a first watch and I would have to watch it again to really get it yeah. and like read some things in between. But I was just all in for the like weird ass things that were happening and the like computer stuff and the TV stuff and the zaniness of it while being also really biting and smart. Yeah, I agree. I I felt a little out of my depth, a little over my head, but I'd revisit it in the future. Um, It's not like it was unenjoyable because it made me feel that way but i want to dive deeper yeah i think it's a 
challenging film in the way that like art can be challenging, but it's inviting you to engage with it and think about it more and take pleasure in that challenge of it rather than to be like, I didn't like it. And I, and I think that's an invitation I'm willing to accept again and try and get even more from it on a future watch. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Uh, Taken by its unique dialogue, dialogue delivery and, and its pacing. How did it make you feel? It made me feel intellectually and aesthetically challenged in the best way. Okay. For the next one, we got to revisit a classic on its 10-year anniversary. Is it 10? No. 20? They, 25? Yeah. It came out in 1998, and it is 2023. A 10-year anniversary would be 2008. I didn't write down the date. What was it? 1998? Yeah. So 25th. Wow. I like that you want to pretend we're younger than we are, but (laughs) unfortunately it was 25 years, not 10. Well, it's also not a a biography, comedy, drama. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody is sleeping on their notes here. I guess so. Uh, We went and saw Run Lola Run at Metro for its 25th anniversary. It's directed and written by a guy with a real cool name, I have to say. Tom Tom Twiker. <laughs> um, and it stars Franca Potente as Lola and Moritz Bleibtreu as Manny. The synopsis. After a botched money delivery, Lola has 20 minutes to come up with 100,000 Deutschmarks. 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 What do you think of Run, Lola, Run? I would like to say that it's an action crime thriller. Thank you. And his name is Tom Tykwer. Tykwer? T-Y-K-W-E-R. Oh, Tom Tykwer. 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 Probably Tykwer. Tykwer. Oh, I like that even more. <laughs> Tom Tykwer. <laughs> Spending the Deutschmarks. <laughs> you should be doing that. Sorry. I just alienated any of the Dutch people. German. Any of the Deutschmark spenders. <laughs> wow. Um, canceled. What do you think of Run, Lola, Run? So I loved Run, Lola, Run as a teenager. And I probably shouldn't have gone to see this in the theater when I had to work at very early the next day. And it was a 930 showing. But the idea of getting to see this particular movie in the theater was so exciting to me because it's such a visually engrossing film um and i had a feeling that like seeing it with the audio louder too would be really cool and i wasn't wrong (laughs) i was right um this felt like a film that i showed you but i found out that's not the case no when was the first time you saw this movie so many of the first times i saw things or heard of things are lost to me and i made you laugh really hard because i was talking as we were leaving the theater about how like, I don't even know how I found these like cool indie movies in the early two thousands when like the internet was not as helpful. Yeah. Or as easy to navigate as it is now. And then I looked at you and I said, I was very active on the IMDB message boards. (laughs) (laughs) And that is true. I think I did the, the thing. I looked at a lot of lists you like, you know, you'd have websites that had lists or like people's Nexopia pages if they like liked a movie you liked. <laughs> yeah. Um, people's MySpace pages. So I don't know how I heard of this, but I'm sure I did. And then I went and bought it at HMV. I used to do the thing where I would just buy the movie. 
mm-hmm. because it was, if it was a little bit more independent, it was hard to find to rent. Yeah. So I would, you know, take the trip out to West Edmonton mall and just buy all the weird indie movies that I wanted to watch. So I watched it sometime either in late junior high or early high school. And I just thought it was the coolest. I thought she was the coolest. I wanted her hair at one point in my life. I did have it. Uh, not that cut, but that color. And I was, I just thought I was like the baddest be around, <laughs> you know? Um, and I was dating you at the time. So you probably were like, my partner's a bad bee. <laughs> Look at that red hair. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I saw it in high school. Um, my film teacher loved it. My film and media teacher loved it. Had a poster for it in his room and he showed it in class. You know what? Possibly that's where I saw it. Because uh, we, because like, I took a class with him too. Because we studied it, like we in film ten. Yes, I think. Then so. that's probably where I saw it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I just don't remember that because I did not like that man. Um, but I did the same thing. Like I saw it, we watched it, we studied it, and I loved it. So I went out and bought it uh, from HMB. Um, but yeah, I I loved it, and revisiting it now, still love it. It's awesome. For me, it was, and if I did see it in film and media, I obviously divorced it from the teacher who I found to not be the type of person that I wanted to take future classes with. Um, For me, though, this film was a real, like, entry point into more independent cinema and into international film. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it was one of the first non-English language films that I really liked that wasn't a um, Japanese horror. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had some like Hong Kong made horror films that I liked too, but um, so, so it really helped me kind of start to watch films that were more experimental, that were international, that were independent. It also got me really into philosophy mm. and like questions of ethics and things like that. And, you know, I loved the idea of the butterfly effect and that's mm-hmm. present in this film. And then I started really diving deep into like it. So it happened this way. I started watching more German film because of Run, the Run. And I watched a film that Moritz Lebtro, probably should have looked that up, um, was in called Das Experiment, which is based on the Stanford Prison Experiment. And then I was like, whoa, what's the Stanford prison experiment? And then I just like started learning more and more about these like 1960s, 1970s experiments that were radically unethical, but endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I still like all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say like if there was one thing that the film class was really good at was, was for me opening my willingness or opening my um, curiosity and my patience for watching films that were subtitled or not mm. non-English films. Uh, Cause he showed us a few and then eventually I more or less kind of got taken under his, my, our teacher's wing a little bit. And he had like a whole movie collection that he would lend me stuff from. And there was a lot of stuff like uh, another one was like Ameros Peros, which I haven't seen since then, but like, I really liked that film and I was like, holy shit, like this is not, there's not English good movies. <laughs> the ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Just ignorant white boy from what, <laughs> from small little white suburbs. Um, but yeah, like 
this movie. I remember loving it when I was younger and just haven't revisited it until now. Um, but it is so engaging. It's so fun. So kinetic. Yeah. Like it just, it, moves. it zips. And then there's these two moments in the film that, slow down and are quiet and I find them really fascinating. I think that the character of Lola was one of those times where I saw a woman in the lead of a film who wasn't sexualized, who wasn't victimized, who wasn't dumb. Like she just was doing what she wanted to do. Um, And in fact, she's the competent one. Yeah. Right. She's the problem solver. And I just found that so unlike what I had seen before. And that was so exciting to me to be like, she is so badass, and it's just because she's badass. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more to it than that. She's just fucking cool. Her outfit's not even that great. Yeah. Like she's just in like comfy clothes Mm -hmm. running around the city. Um, And the music is just like, keeps your heart pumping with her. I don't know. It's so great. And I love the little animated sequences. Yeah, it's so good. I I really loved, especially in high school, whenever, because it was kind of like the height of like Tarantino doing this as well, of just like mixed media within films. Yeah. I, I was just sucker. For, I was just such a sucker for it. Something I just remembered is just when we watched this this time, I don't think I had remembered the whole kind of butterfly effect of it all. Oh, I did. Um, but it's so funny. It reminded me of when I first went into film and media. Um, I think our teacher was trying to kind of gauge what kind of films we had all watched. And it's like, trust me, I watch cool shit. Me saying this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, oh, what? Like the butterfly effect? <laughs> and I was like, mm. <laughs> yeah. I like that movie. Yeah. And then, I bet we wouldn't now. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then he slaps Run Lola Run on. I'm like, oh. You thought the butterfly effect was cool. Yeah. One thing I will say for this movie that I I think hasn't aged as well in terms of how I see the world is it's a pretty fast movie. Like it's under 90 minutes um, and it has these moments as she runs into people in these different scenarios where we get these flashes forward into their lives. And I did find some of them to be very reductive in terms of like what makes a good life and what makes a bad life. And the bad life to be very reliant on some kind of ableist ideas um, as well as like over simplification of drug use and homelessness. Yeah. Because literally literally they're trying to capture it in like snapshots. And so they, it could be quite reductive. And that was a thing that didn't land with me in quite the same way. There's also like a kind of magical blind woman in it which is not something that i think is great yeah and so that's a shame that it's kind of got these reductive moments in a film that otherwise i think does some really great stuff with putting a woman at the forefront of an action movie in a way that isn't tomb raider or whatever other action movies were happening (laughs) yeah yeah, no, uh, that's a really good point because I, I quite like those snapshot moments, but it's what it's, I like it from a technical standpoint, but what it's depicting, you're right, reductive is the word of the day when it comes to those. 
I will say that this movie does have one of my favorite scenes in cinema and it takes place in a casino. It, it just rocks. <laughs> well, one of the great things about this film in terms of the type of film and art that you and I like is it, it definitely is magical realism. Yeah. Right. Because even within the kind of philosophical landscape of butterfly effect type ideas, there still is a degree of magical realism. Like there's some echoes as if there's a part of her that has knowledge of the previous versions, even if she's not consciously aware of it and some really interesting stuff going on there. One thing that I learned in reading about this that maybe at some point I knew, um, but there's narration at the beginning of the film and I think it comes back in at the end and maybe at the start of every new try at the day. Mm-hmm. And the person who narrates it was German Germany's most popular fairy tale narrator. Oh. And so we wouldn't know that, but I guess he has a very recognizable voice and German folks or folks who, you know, kind of grew up in the surrounding countries and speak German would have known that voice and known who he was. Um, so not unlike the film Pleasantville starting with once upon a time where it kind of just signals this framework of looking at it through the idea of a fairy tale. Um, and that's something that is obviously missing for us and knowing that now it's a different lens on the film. That I quite like. Yeah. Like it makes it um, even more kind of whimsical and dreamlike, childlike. I don't know. It just adds to the fun. It is fun. Um, The last thing I'll say about this is that I had not picked up on in previous viewings that this is totally what inspired the Ocean Avenue music video from Yellow Card. Yeah, you keep telling me I need to watch it now, but we just haven't had time. Yeah, we'll watch it after this because it's a hundred percent. Like some of the some of the beats are one to one. I throw that in the show notes for all you Yellow Card fans. Hell yeah! I need to check this out, but I guess that this is known as one of the worst English dubbings of all time. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I would like to watch a clip of the English dub because I've never watched it dubbed. Yeah. I will not watch something dubbed if I have any other choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So apparently it's awful. I also have a new rendition of, do you find this interesting or not? Oh, hell yeah. Okay. So for all you folks who have never heard, do you find this interesting or not? This is a piece of trivia from IMDb trivia that I am quoting. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Quote, the film and its visual style could have influenced crank 2006. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real loose statement. What? Do you find that interesting? No. All right. (laughs) So 21 of 74 people found it interesting. Now we will say 21 of 75 people find this interesting. 22 of 75. No, because you didn't find it interesting. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. (laughs) Math is not your math today. No. <laughs> that is not my math today. Correct. <laughs> yeah. That's not interesting. No, I know. That's why I picked it. I was like, what a dumb <laughs> thing to have on IMDb trivia. Oh my. Now, did you know it could, it could have inspired Crank? Possibly. A lot of things could have something at some time. <laughs> How did Run Lola Run make you feel? Made me feel pretty cool then and now. Pretty, pretty cool. How to make you feel. Gave me a newfound appreciation for this fun ride. Okay. Shot back to me for 
a mystery movie pick and our last movie of the week. And it was a favorite. I picked the 2017 drama, The Florida Project. It was written and directed by Sean Baker, as well as written by Chris Bergok. Uh, and it stars Brooklyn Prince as Mooney, Bria Venate, so sorry, as Haley, uh, the goat, Willem Dafoe as Bobby, Christopher Rivera as Scooty, and Valeria Cotto as Jancy. I'll also say Mella Murder as Ashley. Synopsis. Set over one summer, the film follows precocious six-year-old Mooney as she courts mischief and adventure with her ragtag playmates and bonds with her rebellious but caring mother all while living in the shadows of Walt Disney World. That's last bit is so metal. Yep. I can't even. Okay. I mostly picked this because James Acaster and Brett Goldstein brought us here. Uh, with you talking about it on Brett Goldstein's podcast. What'd you think? So it's so interesting to me that you called this a favorite because you're not wrong, but this was only our second time we'd ever seen it. I know. This is one of those films that the first time I saw it, I was just in awe. Like I knew I had seen something that I would carry with me forever. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised it's taken us this long to watch it again. Um, I think the first time we watched it, we rented it from the library because I don't think it was available anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't remember if this was our first Sean Baker film or not. Might have been Tangerine. Not sure. But this movie despite having only seen it twice is one of my all time favorite movies. So as I mentioned at the start of our conversation for this week, it's a really interesting book ending with the starting of our week with a woman under the influence, because like a woman under the influence, this is looking at some of the most lighthearted, hilarious, beautiful, tender parts of family, friendship and community and then it's also looking at such dark, intense, sad, awful things. And it's putting those in constant relation with each other in a way that I think is so fluid and complex and human. Yeah. Yeah, it really successfully juxtaposes the complicated and complex realities of adult life with the childlike wonder, freedom, and reckless abandon that you experience when you're younger and it all takes place in the shadows of Walt Disney world. Yeah. It's so well said in that um, synopsis, this movie makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> There's something about little kids swearing that I just, and not in like a dumb good boys way. Yeah. Just like a kid being like, you're shit. <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> and being like all sassy about it. Yeah. When they're just like too young to really understand that what they're saying is mean. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just so great. And Brooklyn Prince as Mooney, I think that's the cutest kid I've ever seen in my life. She's a force of nature. Oh my goodness! Like this movie wouldn't be so great without the work that she does. And obviously, um, Haley in the film Bria Vinate, I'm gonna say, um, does a fantastic job as well. I just this movie makes me weep. When it gets there, I just love it so much. <laughs> I just do. Yeah. I mean, we've spoken about 
are ongoing and evolving uh, ideas about childhood actors and kid actors, but they were able to capture something really special with this movie and the talent that they put in it. The relationship between Mooney and Jancy is beautiful. Well, there's something about this film in a similar way to Monica, which we saw this week as well, that uses the specificity of Mooney and her community at the um, Magic Castle, right, is where they're staying. That is exploring the particular nature of this kind of transient houselessness where you're not actually houseless, but in the community that arrives from it and the disparity between tourists at Disneyland and the poverty that Mooney and her family and her community is experiencing that is, is highly specific. And yet at the same time, I don't think I've seen a film that captures childhood in a way that I relate to better than this movie. And I was not living that specific life. Mm-hmm. And so to have that specificity of that experience and to give us, you know, a window into that while also having the universality of the idea of childhood and loss of innocence and awareness of the cruelties and disparities in the world to have both of those things happening at the same time is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Baker's whole approach to this film was so smart and so beautiful from the way that he shot it to all the, like the set decoration to like, the people he cast and the performances he got out of those people. And, and like this whole movie is it's, it's anchored by Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Like he's not our main person, but everything kind of comes back to him and his relationship with everybody that exists within the community of this inn. And while he's, (laughs) he gets frustrated, he gets angry he loses his temper like this for all intents and purposes is his family. And these are the people that he is looking after. Like there's a, there's a moment and it's in the trailer for this where he's walking out after just solving a problem for everybody in, in, uh, in the inn, and somebody just yells, I, I love you, Bobby. And he says, I love you too. <laughs> It's just so pure. It's so genuine. And it's in that moment that I'm just like, oh, like Bobby's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's- but a complicated guy. There's some subtle but important moments with his son in this that I think show the complication of his character in a way that I picked up on even more on the second watch. But he's so great in this. Um, it's not often you see Willem Dafoe not as a creep character (laughs) so so lovely to just see him as like a good guy yeah no and yeah just like a normal person not like a a goblin (laughs) (laughs) goblin. did you know that he was nominated for best supporting actor at the oscars i didn't but hell yeah yeah that's really well deserved i don't think he won hence nominated but this is like i don't know i'd say this is kiki kwan quality Supporting act, supporting actor stuff that he's putting into this film. Whatever. Oscars are BS. <laughs> Sometimes. 
uh, like something else I wanted to say to you was this movie does a really great job of highlighting how when we're kids, we see the things that our parents do and we don't really question them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's through therapy and life experience that you begin to unpack those things. Yeah, Mooney will need therapy. To get an understanding that the world doesn't have to work this way or things didn't, didn't, you shouldn't have had to have experienced this and carried it with you or how to move forward acknowledging what you went through. At the same time, I think there's a degree in this film to which it's, yes, there are things that Mooney shouldn't have to be subject to, but there's also things that her mom shouldn't have to be subject to and and ways that her choices are limited, right? One of the things that I really appreciate about Sean Baker's films, but I'm thinking specifically about this one, is the way he presents characters that do some things that are really not great, and yet he always presents it non-judgmentally. Um, because there is something that happens in this film that I think many people would be unable to look past and see the many layers of the relationship between two characters. This is almost, this is full circle from a woman under the influence. Absolutely. That's what I said. They'd be a harrowing double feature, but a really thematically resonant one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really appreciate how Sean Baker does that. He just presents these characters without any sense of how we as an audience are supposed to feel, whether we're supposed to forgive them or whether we're supposed to hate them. He just presents it like sometimes this happens in the world. So I would hope that if Mooney is able to access therapy when she was older, I speak about those fictional characters. If she's real, that's how I feel about characters that they go on and continue to live their lives, that she would be able to have grace for herself and care for that, those parts of herself that experienced things she maybe shouldn't have had to while also having some grace for her mom and understanding the situation that her mom was in. Yeah. Right. And and you can do both of those things at once. You can say what happened to me wasn't okay. And yet I understand why my mom had no other option for herself or no other tools that she was capable of accessing. That doesn't make the harm go away, but it's a nuanced and complex look at it. And I think the film does that really well. Yeah, Totally. Because yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that that Mooney could unpack in the future, but I think her mom is what gives Mooney the chutzpah that she has. Oh boy, does she have chutzpah! <laughs> there are many ways in which the character of Mooney feels like a kindred spirit to me, and the main one is how much she loves treats. There's a scene where she gets to eat at a buffet and it is just me. <laughs> it's just me. Or see, there's a scene where she gets to order whatever she wants at a restaurant. It's just me. She loves treats so much and she's so sassy. and I love it so much. There's a great scene where her and Jancy are eating jelly. Mm-hmm. And I guess all of the dialogue in that scene, or maybe not all of it, but much of the dialogue in that scene is taken directly from a Little Rascals episode from the 1950s. <laughs> Which is really cool. That's great. I love that. I feel like we can't talk about this film without talking about the ending, although we'll talk about it non-specifically, because the whole reason that this was back on our radar, as you said, was because um, it got brought up on Brett Goldstein's podcast, uh, Films to be Buried With, in one of the episodes that James A. Caster was on, 
where James Acaster said that he loves the film, except he hates the ending. And Brett Goldstein said, get off this podcast yeah. right now. <laughs> and I totally get that this is a divisive ending. I love it. I think it's a brilliant ending and it does so much thematically. Like this is a teachable film. Like I feel like I could teach this film in probably English 30-1. I won't because I love it too much. Um, and I, I can't do that. I can't. When, I, when a film means that much to me, I can't share it in that way where I'm opening it to criticism and, and overly analyzing it to the point that I won't be able to just experience it. Yeah. And I can totally see kids not latching onto this. I could see them really focusing on like what that person did was wrong yeah. as opposed to the nuance of it. Although I do actually think it would be a phenomenal pairing with the play I do called Adult's House. Mm. And looking at when people are facing social barriers sometimes the things they do are things that we might not morally agree with. And yet they're the best they can do in that situation. Yeah. Um, and the play is from the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet I think there's some really similar through lines with very different settings and very different literal things that happen. And yet they're quite thematically connected. Yeah. People will continue to people the way that we people. Yeah. It's one of the best endings of all time. Have you seen Sean Baker's Letterboxd review of his own film? <laughs> no. So Sean Baker is one of the handful of people involved in making film who have a letterbox that's attached to their real name. Um, so he reviewed this. He gave it one star. And it says the last sequence is shot digitally. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> With an exclamation mark. <laughs> I'm assuming that that's because he's probably taken a lot of flack for that. Oh, yeah. He's taken the... It's quite funny. Just taking the piss. That's really good. I love this movie. I think this is one that um, we should do a deep dive on at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. Much like Monica, where I highly recommend you watch this movie. This movie is incredible. Watch Clap Emoji, this Clap Emoji movie. It is also Slice of Life. It is also slow. If you don't realize by now that that's our favorite type of movie, I can't help you. Yeah. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel the joys and pains of childhood in the most tender and honest way. How did it make you feel? Just completely in love with this wonderful piece of cinema. And them's the smackeroonies, baby. And now's the dads. Who is your bad dad? nominee i want you to tell me a your bad dad nominee uh, i picked nick from woman under the influence yep checks out so you know i will give him the benefit of the doubt that he is certainly a product of his time in what he is no doubt learned from the people in his family that came before him about relationship dynamics and how to carry yourself through the world but I find that he has an impatience. He has impatience and his impatience leads to hurtfulness. Mm -hmm. And his pursuit of doing the quote unquote right thing or having the best intentions can come across as thoughtless and not considerate of the wider scope of what repercussions or what outcomes could happen. And I mean... And then last, he's he's abusive. 
Yeah, that part's uh, it's a little hard to argue with that. <laughs> Who'd you pick? I picked Vater. That's Lola's dad. Oh. We didn't really get into this in Run Lola Run, but it really shows you that dads are shit. Yeah. Um, Vater, which I believe just means father in German, um, is just an absolute dink. Yeah. Talk about a shit dad. Top tier dink. He's shit to his daughter. He's shit to his family. He's a slimy CEO douche. He like, when his daughter is clearly in like desperate need of immediate help, he's just like, fuck you, you little shit. Like essentially, <laughs> right? Um, but I do think he's kind of painted, you know, now knowing that there's a degree of fairy tale in this, he's kind of like the evil parent figure in a fairy tale in a hyperbolic way. And so I think that there's more nuance in your choice of Nick. But Vater is shit. <laughs> Bad Vater, rad Vater. <laughs> <laughs> For the Germans in the... <laughs> yeah. This is trying to win you back after the whole Deutschmarks yeah, thing. Yeah, really sorry about the Deutschmarks, but if you'd like us to do a rendition of Bad Vater, rad Vater, we will. <laughs> um... So we're going with Nick. Nick. Uh, don't, don't be a dad. dad. No. Rad dad. On three? Yep. One, two, two three. three. Monica. Shit. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, we we goofed it. Who did you pick? Bobby. Bobby? Who Bobby? Willem <laughs> Dafoe, you Oh, of shit. course. Of course. There were so many rad dad possibilities this week. It was really tough. Oh no. Um I think these are two solid choices. <laughs> what do we do? Well, hit me with the Bobby stuff. Okay. I just I think that Bobby has some of the aspects of what we see in like Callum and After Sun, you know, when I when I named Callum Rad Dad back in I think that was episode 30 one where we first watched After Sun. You had some reservations about how can we name someone Rad Dad who certain things happen with. And I said, you don't have to be perfect to be Rad Dad. In fact, like humans are not perfect. Yes. Right? And even in our binary of Bad Dad, Rad Dad, to have some nuance. So I actually really like that about Bobby. I think that on just the the, the immediately Rad part of it, he has no requirement to have the empathy, kindness, and care that he does for all of the people at the Magic Castle. His job is to just manage it. And we actually see that there's a night manager who does not seem to have the same level of like empathy and care and community that he does. So he doesn't have to do it, and yet he does. And in that way, he is like this parental figure to the entire complex. There's also explicit moments of like clear heroism. Like when we were watching the film, you said not all heroes wear capes. Because <laughs> there's a point in the film where he protects the kids in a way that I hope anybody would, but he doesn't have to do it again. And the way he does it is really smart. Just replaying it in my mind. It's so good. It's brilliant. But the thing that I think is so important about Bobby is that we see the complicated relationship he has with his own son and that maybe he hasn't been the raddest dad to his own son. And I think that shows the complicated way that just how we speak about how maybe we have 
difficulties and traumas and complicated feelings about our own dads and like we seek dads elsewhere that sometimes dads are actually real shit at parenting their biological children and yet they manage to be really good dads elsewhere yeah that's just i was just gonna say that too like because he doesn't seem like his son would say he's a rad dad and yet he is and i think that shows the nuance of sometimes we don't manage to be a certain part of ourself with particular people or in particular situations. And that doesn't mean we can't endeavor to do it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's a really beautiful and important and complex thing. Well, I think it's, I don't know if easier is the right word, but the opportunity to, I mean, we even do it at work, right? Like we have opportunities to present ourselves differently in a space like work or in a different social circle. Or if you start like, start playing on a rec league or something like you can present different versions of yourself for more idealized versions of yourself for the, maybe pursue a, a a part of yourself that you haven't had an opportunity to in the past. So well, there's a degree to which in the brief scenes we see with Bobby and his son that it seems to me like maybe he has messed up along the way with his child and he has grown and he's, he's seeking redemption and he's seeking to be better and he wants to do that with his son, but there's a lot of hurt Mm -hmm. and like history there And that he probably could be a rad dad to his son now, but there's just a history of maybe not having been. And yet that doesn't stop him from trying to continue to learn and grow and be better. And I think that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. While understanding that maybe he isn't the perfect parental figure in all aspects of his life, but he is working at it. Yeah. Yeah, I think Bobby's going to take this one, but I think that the uh, honorable mention... Goes to my pick, Monica. Oh, she's, yeah. I mean, I, there's so much I want to say about that film, but I think it's just best experienced. Yeah. I, I, I just wrote down one sentence and it just like, Monica has this willingness and patience to put a hurtful past to the side to help loved ones who caused the hurt in the first place. And then to help them start to understand and love her as a person. What a goat. That's incredible and such an incredibly hard thing to do. I can't imagine doing that, but she takes it on and it's not without challenges. It's not with, she doesn't do it seamlessly. It's not perfect. It's her own way, but it is amazing. But I, I'm happy to give Monica honorable mention but I think that for the amount that we talked about Bobby and what Bobby's bringing to the table uh, and the fact that Florida Project is probably, I'm going to say it's probably in my top 10. Yeah, but you loved Monica too. (laughs) The moral of the story, dear listener, is you should watch Monica and you should watch the Florida Project. The thing, And if you like one, you'll probably like the other. Do you know what what the thing is? Do we have to give it to Bobby? We've seen Florida Project twice. (laughs) (laughs) We've only seen Monica once. All right. Bobby? Bobby, be your dad. dad. All right. Before we get out of here, Rad Rec, BYOB party, a.k.a. Bring Your Own Birdhouse party. Yeah, we had um, two birthdays this week. We had our best buddy, Ashley. Ah. And then your sister. We actually recorded this in two parts because we had to take a little break to go for a birthday dinner. Sorry, actually three birthdays this week? Our baby boy, Thompson. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, baby boy, Thompson. 
love of my life, dearest son, turned 12. The biggest, handsomest boy. The biggest, handsomest boy. Um, best buddy, Ashley. And then your little sis, little sister. Yeah. So many cancers. Yeah. Uh, actually, Thompson's a Gemini, but. Oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it does. So Ashley had a birthday and it was a BYOB, bring your own birdhouse birthday. And it was one of the loveliest nights I have ever had. Yeah. So chill, just hanging out with Ash and her family, <laughs> painting birdhouses. And so, she gave us great pointers. She bought you a special little shark yeah, little, for you to paint. Little Jaws esque shark. Her family dog just about got lost. Yeah, the little drama of the evening. Was, but he was just in somebody else's backyard, so it was okay. Yeah. I painted a haunted birdhouse. Yeah. With a little ghosty. Very good. So I don't know if we've directly said uh the rad wreck of the week is to paint birdhouses with your friends. <laughs> And their parents. And their parents. Preferably. Uh, yeah. Highly recommend um, craft nights with your friends, but painting birdhouses in particular is quite fun. Yeah. Who would have thought? Not me. So happy birthday to all of Everyone. our people. Yeah. All of the Cancers and the end stage Geminis. Yeah. Uh, happy birthday, everybody. And thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Uh, you can follow us and sign into our DMs at uh, baddad.raddad over on Instagram. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these birdhouse babies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.